Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. We come to you every Friday where we discuss, among other things, our weekly roundup post, Another Week Ends. As always, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and in just a moment, we'll talk with David Zoll, Mockingbird's founder and director, and the one who wrote this week's Another Week Ends. Yet an, uh, another discussion of another week ends. David, how are you? Are you like, do you have your salt? Do you have your snow shovel? Are you like, are you like stockpiling goods for the blizzard or what? Uh, <laughs> I should have done more, but instead I was writing a, a weekend, <laughs> another weekends. Uh, just kidding. We're, we're in great shape, but man, there is a lot of snow coming down outside. I'm looking out my window right now and uh, here it's predicted to be, you know, 24, uh, inches. Everyone, people in Virginia, I'm such a skeptic about these things. You know, every time they sit, tell me it's going to, um, you know, going to be two feet, I always say, well, I heard it was going to be six, uh, just cause they get, um, very paranoid about it and everything closes like three days before, uh, you know, the weather even comes, but in this, uh, this, uh, instance, it looks like we made the right decision. I, I just barely made it home to be honest with you. Do you know the, the, how they report the weather, the bias these, I read this long article once because my friend and I were debating about whether or not the weather is accurate. What they do is they skew like, so basically if it's your kid's wedding and they say, you know, it's, it's X chance of rain. They skew it towards uh, the bad weather. So then if it's better, you're not mad. But if they say it's not going to rain and your kid's mm -hmm. getting married outside or whatever and it rains, then you hate them. Well, that's smart. I mean, that's sort of like a low anthropology. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like if you expect people to be kind of self-interested all the time when they're not, it's really a nice surprise rather than the opposite, which creates just bitterness. In fact, Right here in Charlottesville, it's like one of the wedding capitals of the country. Um, it's a huge industry in this town. And I, I overheard as I was leaving the office this morning that um, it, uh, they had a friend who is getting married this weekend. And, you know, that that's just – they might as well not get married at this point because there, there's no getting in or out of this town. And um, I guess it's pretty dramatic though. So that, that, that maybe underscores the sense of urgency about what's actually happening in that service. But <laughs> man – Man, it's pretty incredible. Pretty, pretty, pretty cool. There's nothing like weather to like reinforce our sense of finitude that we basically, uh, you know, try to diminish with every form of technology and safety and things like that. Oh my gosh. I, part of me loves that stuff. And of course I, I, I find it obnoxious as well when my routines get interrupted, but I was talking to, um, Brian Jarrell, who does our social media, and he was just saying how much he loves the disruption of it and to see um, people having to come to grips with their own lack of agency is, is amusing. Um, and of course, even those of us who write about this and think about it all the time, we're still just as caught up in our own little to-do lists. So what are you and doing this year? Well, I'm just being amused by watching people come to grips with their own loss <laughs> of agency. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I've got three TV screens up, you know. <laughs> I'm just... Uh, 
just yeah. laughing at all those people screaming at their airline uh, workers. No, oh jeez. Uh, I just hope. Um, I think our church is going to be canceled. That kind of thing. But wh- talking about weather is only so interesting. You want? want should I? Can I tell you what I just finished writing about? I would love for you to tell me that, and especially if any of it is discussing the loss of agency people feel. And- <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the very first item, which is this enormous. I devote, I probably should have given it its own post, but it's this uh, video game that has been getting a lot of press recently called That Dragon Cancer. And it is uh, these uh, programmers in Colorado, a married couple, and their friend made it, uh, the, what sounds like the most, it's been called the most profound video game ever made about their son, uh, one of their sons who uh, contracted terminal cancer and actually ended up dying, in fact. Um, but they, they describe a scene in the early on in the film when the son is crying and they can't get him to stop. And um, you can sort of go around the room and do everything you can to try to get this child to stop screaming. And it only makes it worse. And it's actually recorded the voice of the father himself doing this. And um, only until you completely run out of steam and pray. Does the child stop crying? And that's actually what ac- what happened in the this man's life. So it's a tearjerker. It's really powerful. It's and it is a lot about how do you create a, video games themselves. You have extremely limited agency. You're thrust into some world that's been carefully designed and plotted out. Um, and in fact, the whole point of the game is to diminish your agency to do exactly what you've been told to do by the or what you the designers have made you to do. But this is trying to capture that on a more spiritual cosmic level. Um, they're devoted uh, Christians, both of them, and they. Uh, it just sounds uh, like something you can't really describe. So I, I would I would advise people, especially if they're trapped in the snow, to listen to the podcast to which I link to uh, from Reply All, which is a great podcast anyway. But um, which tends to be a very I don't know secular podcast about technology. They just go there and they talk about God and they talk about prayer groups and they talk about agency and they talk about suffering and they talk about grief. Um, all in the um, context of this video game. How are the so, graphics on the video game? The graphics are kind of they're they're intentionally um, like uh, geometrical. They, they're they're the movement looks very natural, but um, it's meant to look like a video game, not like reality. Uh, maybe because what's going on is so real. But um, yeah, it's something that's I would say deeply. Um, moving uh and especially the faith element the god element is just fantastic so i i advise people to also go at it though knowing that it's about the death of a small child that's a helpful disclaimer and on a related thing to sadness and grief you you highlight this piece by megan garber on grief policing yet another list of things we talk about that are being policed yeah Grief policing being uh, what is happening on social media, these enormous displays of public grief and mourning after a celebrity dies or even someone in the community dies and everyone posts these, um, you know, tributes and uh, emojis and things like that. <clears throat> and I, I, there are people out there that get very cynical about it as they – I completely understand that they do. But uh, – Essentially, you should use that megaphone you you, you um, 
direct in the opposite uh, way and you say, um, stop grieving. <laughs> You're not grieving correctly. This is not real grief. This is not good grief. Um, <clears throat> you're not, well, yeah, good grief. This isn't good grief. So I think in terms of the Bowie thing, it all was related to some journalists saying that she wanted to throw up, uh, even thinking about what's going to happen when Paul McCartney dies. And, you know, you kind of get it, but, um, this is what the internet does. Is you, there's this, it, you develop these, um, new rules and everyone kind of gets hammered if they don't follow them and, or there's an overreaction in the opposite direction. On the other hand, like you do see uh, public displays of grief become exhibitionist where everyone's sort of trying to one up each other with their displays of grief and becomes uh, competitive or self-justifying. So, but she, she talks about it. Um, uh, Megan's um, she's, she's always interesting to read. Uh, she says that our culture is obsessed with figuring out how to do things properly. And, um, usually we, our conception of grief is very private. And so it's, it's an exploration of sort of the imperatives around grief and how those are shifting and how it's, um, never an easy thing to deal with. So I, I recommend the piece. And the other thing you have in here that is, by the way, do you know in Korea, you, they hire professional mourners? Oh, to come to your funeral? Yeah. And they'll cry really loudly and stuff. You've got really – I mean I guess they're like huh. – I mean I, I don't know if they're levels. Like, you know, well, I couldn't afford a great public mourner, but, you know, they, their tear ducts were kind of dry. But, I mean, <laughs> they, you know, created some volume. I don't know. I don't know how that works really. Gosh. That's the sort of thing that like the gut reaction is extremely judgmental on that one. Maybe there's more compassion to be had uh, in the midst of that. But. You have this – um. You had this piece on the Marx Brothers and the development of um, comedy. I think it was a Wall Street Journal link, mm -hmm. right, by Lee Siegel. Yeah. And how Groucho Marx invented modern comedy. This I found uh, interesting. What drew you to this piece? Well, it talks about what, what, what Marx did that seems so revolutionary, especially looking back, is very revolutionary, is that he broke down uh, – he went out of his way to break down – uh, barriers between private, private and public The previous to Marx, at least on screen, uh, comedians were telling jokes and there were punchlines and they were just trying to make you laugh. Uh, he was sort of the advent of people, um, acting without a filter in, you know, on, uh, they're being acting in almost reprehensible ways. Um, there being no difference between the private person and the public person. And, um, that we see, all over the place now. He, he cites Louis C.K. and Amy Schumer, just this kind of, let me tell you exactly how bad I am, or uh, you see it, Larry David and stuff, and I, I like a lot of that kind of comedy. It, it's, it makes you squirm, but uh, they, they claim that Groucho was evincing a sort of freedom that now uh, people have gone so far in that direction that comedians are kind of trying to pull back and find limitations that will make them their comedy more interesting. Um, so I, I just thought it was a, a very interesting exploration of how creativity works with limitation, how we try to integrate ourselves and how these things are always morphing into new mandates. Uh, but also that you know, I, I believe that the gospel sort of allows a person the freedom to be who they are and not have to put up this facade. Um, 
and that's what Marx there, – there's, there's a little bit of a corollary to why Marx was approaching comedy. Uh, but it also mentions that Marx was sort of self-hating and um, also a snob and uh, kind of ended on a kind of nihilistic note or a hope – despairing note. Well, it's interesting. Mark Twain said in heaven – there will be laughter, but no humor because humor is always based on incongruity, right? And like, you know, there's no like, hey, let me tell you this great joke. Boy meets girl. They fall in love and have a great life. But I'm bum I mean, it's always based on pain and incongruity. Yeah. And so there's this kind of um, the other thing I was thinking of uh, was Nietzsche said that the sacred in society is what we all agree we can't laugh at. Huh? Yeah, that's that's, that's so I, I don't know what's sacred anymore universally in say American culture, maybe nine 11. I can think of a few things, but they, they, I know what you mean. It's just shifting, but there's always something that you're not allowed to laugh about. But, uh, gosh, that's an interesting quote from, um, not only from Nietzsche, but, uh, the other one as well. You know, think, speaking of which I, I saw something really, really funny this week. Do you like fight of the concords, Scott? I have not watched it. That's fine. I have, I've, it's on my list of things to watch. Well, I love Flight of the Concords, and you know it was over kind of too soon, but they ended on a high note. Anyway, one of the the, the guys in that Jermaine Clement wrote and directed a film called What We Do in the Shadows, which is sort of a mockumentary about some vampires that live together in uh, New Zealand. And uh, I had heard it was funny and amusing and kind of clever, but I had no idea how funny it was going to be. I think those who are trapped inside, they can dial that up on their uh, on-demand. They will – they're all like me that left themselves. Silly. I love vampire films. I, I, the, this, this sort of lampoons all of them, but in a really fresh way. It doesn't, it's not like um, Mel Brooks. It's, it's really <laughs> – I, I, I laugh just thinking about it. And the last thing that – uh, that caught my eye was this piece that shows that Christians who think they're bad at science do worse on tests about science. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the social science studies that I highlighted this week. It, it, it was um, using it was looking at something called stereotype threat, where if you tell if you remind girls that girls are bad at math right before they take a math test, they tend to do worse on the math test than if they, um, you know, if, if they were not told that. And the example they use is of Christians hating science and sort of the, the stereotype of Christians not doing science well. And so they got all these Christians together. I don't, I don't you know, and how they measure these things is always a little dubious, but they, uh, yeah, they told them if they sort of mentioned that they were about to take a test to measure their scientific knowledge, um, they did, were, they did worse than if they said if it was there to measure their intuitive reasoning or something like that. And, um, and especially if they reminded them, say, Hey, we know Christians aren't good at science. So here's a science test. They always did worse. Now, you always wonder, does it work in the opposite way? Like if you tell them they're good at something, does that speech event create, you know, does it sort of impute to someone a better, uh, scientific ability? I don't know, but it was, what do you, th Scott? Or, uh, I've noticed that you're pretty bad at science. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm terrible. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't grow up though in a home. I didn't grow up in a very churched home or anything. So like, I didn't have some of the. And I'm, I'm guessing these are conservative Christians too. They're talking about, but it is interesting. There, uh, you know, it's ultimate philosophically, right? Like, 
it's kind of a Judeo-Christian worldview that allows for science, right? That actually mm-hmm. the, that the creator has normative patterns that you can see, you know, in the creation, uh, you know, th- the sun and the moon aren't, you know, divine beings. They're just lights. God hangs in the sky and you can observe them and describe them. So it's interesting that we come full circle that the church is often looked at as sort of as being hostile to science. But the other thing that was interesting to me, it just in what you said was the only t- I think the power of imputation is really, really remarkable. Like when somebody looks at you uh, in, as your best self, as a best imagined self, and you can kind of live into it. As a, but it's funny the way we use the term imputation in our culture, it's almost always negative. You mm. imputed those motives yeah. to me, or how dare you impute that to me? Like we've lost. We've, we've, we haven't completely we use it as a word. form of projection, don't we? I mean, we use it just as a synonym for projection. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of on Mockingbird over the years. The people have debated about imputation, how it how it sort of functions horizontally, whether it functions at all horizontally. Is God the only one that imputes? If I'm treating you as lovable, even though you're not lovable, is that just a form of manipulation? And I think that usually ignores that. There's kind of an um, unconscious. Uh, moment of when you f- you feel like you've been imputed to even if the the person wasn't uh intending to do so that has that power and you see examples of it the second it becomes a strategy of course it it doesn't work but i still rather be treated as lovable even when i'm not uh than than not treated that way yeah, yeah. well i mean <laughs> frank lake we've talked about a little bit the past weeks i feel like but he has huge sections in his book clinical theology about the importance of human development early on getting acceptance as a gift and not as a reward. And and in that gift, you realize that, you know, you're wacky and frustrated and angry at your parents and frustrated with life. And yet they still give you the gift of acceptance. So I think that's like that need in human develop, development somehow echoes like what gospel development looks like, or, you know, what, what happens when the gospel really takes root in somebody, it's sort of the echo of like really good human development. Or maybe the human development's the echo, rather, of how God relates to us. Yeah, 100%. 100%. You have to close your eyes to this stuff, I, I, I sometimes think. But, yeah, that's that's uh, was a pretty interesting article. I mean, the write-up that I linked to is not that not nearly as interesting as what you just said. <laughs> but um, the uh, other stuff that's in there, you know, I'm really excited about Whit Stillman's new movie, which is an adaptation of a Jane Austen book. That's coming out. It's, it's premiering at Sundance as we speak. Oh, and, um, I forgot to mention, you know, like one of the posts this week that I thought was just phenomenal. I was really happy with all of them. Uh, I loved what CJ did yesterday on uh, college admissions. If people haven't read that, but the, that sports documentary, the 30 for 30 about the Buffalo Bills, um, the four falls of Buffalo, that is must watch viewing for people who are interested in, uh, grace and practice. I think it's, um, it's really, Incredible, and people will probably have time this weekend because yeah. if you're in the Northeast of the Mid Atlantic, you probably will be snowed in. So I'd encourage everybody. Yeah, to, canceled everyone. Yeah, take a take a look at the content of another weekend's. As usual, you can find everything on Ember.com. And David, stay out of the snow, or at least in unless you're doing frolicky things with your kids or something. But you know, I hope you don't have to like run errands or anything. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure we're stocked up on what are the three things people always get? Eggs, bread, 
and milk and whiskey. Usually, got to come out of our ears and whiskey. Yeah. Is that? Uh, yeah, you know, that's usually where people go. Yeah, yeah, you know, firewood, firewood, that kind of. Um, well, Scott, thank you, and I hope you have a great weekend too. And I hope it's uh, it, it's you, you know, you don't get too trapped up in Philadelphia. Ditto, man. Take care. All right. God bless. Once again, thanks for tuning into the Mockingcast. We come to you every Friday where we discuss another weekend's among other things. If you like it, please drop by iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. And as always, you can find all the content we talked about on our website, ember.com. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.